tensions were running high in the wilderness of Paran after the 12 spies came back. There wasn't tension within the 12 men committee at first. They all agreed that the land was everything that the Lord had said it was. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and lest there be any doubt of that, they carried a cluster of grapes back from the land that required two men to shoulder the burden. Nor was there any dispute that there were giants in the land. God had told them that already, but they hadn't seen it. And when they had seen these men, they were really trepidatious. They said that we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So there was full agreement on those statistics. But that's where the committee started to part. There was a majority report and a minority report. The majority report played on the fears of the people of Israel and said, there's no way in the world we ought to go up to the land of promise. We'll be destroyed. They're going to eat us for breakfast. Those giants are massive. And so we just might as well return to Egypt. And then there was the minority report, two men, Joshua and Caleb. They say, no, we can go up. We're well able to overcome the giants because he who is with us is greater than those who are against us. It is a land that God has promised to give us. And so there was division within the committee, but also within the congregation. And the next morning, Joshua and Caleb make one more rousing speech. They say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. It's not that they are going to eat us. We are going to eat them because the Lord our God is with us. And you would think that after such a rousing speech, the people of Israel would just get up and go. But what we read actually is that they got up to stone them with stones. And then the glory of the Lord appeared. Well, if you think Joshua and Caleb are in trouble, just take a look at how much in trouble the nation of Israel is. God is incensed with His people. He's angry with them, and He threatens to strike them with pestilence and to disinherit them. They are no longer going to be his people. He's going to start fresh with someone else. Moses is going to be the progenitor of a new and greater nation. Well, what was it about Israel that so incensed the Lord, the God of Israel? And it's important for us to see this because when you look at Israel, you're actually looking at yourself. Because what we see in them is what we see in ourselves all too often. And the first thing that upset the Lord about Israel was their unbelief, their refusal to trust Him for His promises. He had said that He would give them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. And not only had He said it, but He had demonstrated His ability to deliver on His promises. 
I mean, he had brought them out of Egypt with his strong hand and with his mighty arm. There were 10 instances of his power over the gods of the Egyptians as he brought his people forth. And then every day on their journey, God had provided for them. There was, there was a, a, a manna every day provided on a blanket of dew for the people of Israel. And then there was water from the rock. And then there was the defeat of the enemies who came against them. God had demonstrated time and time again that not only could He promise things, but He could deliver on those promises. And yet the people distrust Him. They don't believe His promises. They are trumped by the realities that they see. They live by sight rather than by faith. And if that weren't enough, not only do they disbelieve God's promises, they disobey God's Word. They refuse to go up. He had said that they ought to. They said that they won't. And I say that they are a mirror for us because this is what sin always is. It is always disbelieving God's Word and disobeying God's command. And you see this right in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were tempted to sin. What did Satan work on? He worked on their confidence in the Lord. Did God really say? And do you think that God was fully honest with you? Don't you think He was holding something back? Because He knows that the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not that you're going to die, it's that you're going to be like God. So how can you trust a God like that who doesn't have your best interests at art? That's was Satan's tactic, and that still is Satan's tactic. You can diagnose any one of your sins and analyze how it is that it happened, and I tell you, it always begins because you doubt the word and promises of God. He says, satisfaction and joy are found in him. The devil says, oh no, it's not, it's found in things, the accumulation of money, or it's found in sexual promiscuity, or it's found in having a good reputation. God just doesn't want you to enjoy those things. Why would you trust what God says? Or God promises that sin will lead to death, and, and you don't believe that promise when you sin, that threat. You say, oh no, it won't. It's, 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 just a scare tactic. It's not really the way it is. God really isn't going to punish me the way that He says He will. Sin always begins with disbelief, which then leads to disobedience. And it's important that we understand this about Israel because it's an understanding about ourselves. This is our native inclination as sinners to doubt the promises of God and to disobey His commands. And because of that, God is incensed, and He threatens judgment. Verse 12, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And as you listen to that, you say, yeah, of course, that makes all the sense in the world. What else is God going to do? He can't brook that kind of opposition. He can't have fellowship with the people who are of that kind of arrogance and self-confidence and rejecting His goodness and grace and His power and His love, of course God must wipe them out. We concur with that sentence of judgment on them. 
And my question is, do you concur with that sentence of judgment on yourselves? Do you really believe that if God were to deal with you as your sins deserve, you could not stand before Him? That all that you could expect was His judgment to come crashing down upon you because of your native inclination to disobey, to distrust His promises and to disobey His commands. This is what we deserve. And that's why it's so encouraging to see how this passage moves. Because you notice in verse 12, God threatens judgment, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And then we read in verse 20 that God says to Moses, I have parted according to your word. I mean, this is wonderful news for us as well, because we deserve the judgment of God, but we want to hear the words of pardon. So the question is, how is it possible that from verse 12, the threatened punishment, we hear instead in verse 20, the promised pardon? Now, I I know that it's important to note that the Israelites did receive the consequences of their sins. God did punish them, uh, and uh, they could not enter the promised land. But but when it says in verse 20, I have pardoned according to your word, what, what the Lord is saying there is that He has pardoned the nation of Israel as a nation. He's not saying that every individual within that nation has been forgiven for their sin of arrogance and pride, but as a nation, He does not wipe them out. He does not destroy them and begin afresh. In fact, He preserves the nation of Israel all the time to the coming of Christ, and then He enlarges that nation by the inclusion of Gentiles into the church of God. So it is true that God did pardon His people and did not carry out the threatened judgment upon them. And the question we want to ask this morning is, why did God not carry through on His Word? Why does He threaten judgment but then promise pardon? And the answer to that question is because of Moses. Moses the mediator. Moses intercedes. You can see that in verses 13 through 19. He intercedes for God's people. And on the basis basis of Moses' intercession, God pardons. Notice verse 20, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. As we sang from Psalm 106, God would have destroyed His people had not Moses stood in the breach. So what I want to do this morning is to look at their mediator, Moses, in order that we might better understand our mediator, Jesus. So what was it about Moses' intercession that held such sway with the Lord? Well, there's two points that I want to highlight. First of all, Moses was passionate for the glory of God. You'll notice there at the end of verse 14, that there, at the end of verse 12 rather, that the Lord says to Moses that he will make of Moses a nation greater and mightier than Israel. Now, that would have been such a heady promise for Moses to think that he would become the father of a new nation. Move aside, Abram. Now the new father of importance is Moses. Everyone would be naming their children after Moses. It would be quite a remarkable thing. 
And these people hadn't been that pleasant to be with in the first place. They had harassed Moses and his brother Aaron throughout the whole of his experience with them. So to be rid of them and to become the father of a new nation would have been a remarkably great thing for Moses. But notice Moses' response in verses 13 through 16. It's not that he rejects what God says, but he says to the Lord, you need to think this through a bit better than you are. He says, basically, God, you got to think about the honor of your name. If you wipe out the nation of Israel as one man, that will be a problem for them, absolutely, because they will be wiped out. But it's also going to be a problem for you. Because what will the nations say? They will scorn you and ridicule. They will mock you. They will say, here's a man who sat down to build a tower and started building and then realized he didn't have the resources to finish it. They'll say that you're like that man. You had all these great ideas, these great promises that you gave to his people. You had these plans to settle your people in the promised land and to drive out the enemies before that. But you couldn't deliver on your promises. God, think about your own honor, the fame of your name. What will people think about you, God? That's what Moses says. It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. That's what they're going to say. And your name is going to be mud. No one's going to take you seriously anymore. You will be uh, scorned and ridiculed and all the other gods of the nations will have a heyday at your expense. So Moses appeals to the glory of God. Now, that's very wise of Moses because he understood something about God. I'm sure that many of you know the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But that's not only man's chief end, that's God's chief end. God has this passion for the fame of His name. He wants His magnificence to be paraded throughout the ends of the earth. God goes public in creation to highlight His majesty and glory, His wonder, so that all the nations might praise Him. God is passionate for His own glory and will not share His glory with anyone else. And so that's just wisdom on Moses' part because he understands that God is passionate for his own glory. And so he says, Lord, what will that do for your name? What will people think about you if you destroy these people? I think this uh, appeal to the glory of God is vastly underplayed in the church. That is, we ought to be doing that more often than we do. You just think about world evangelism. Often we think about evangelism in terms of the poor souls that are going to spend a Christless eternity, and it's unthinkable to think about that way, that uh, those without Christ who die will have an eternity of judgment. And so our hearts go out to these people in compassion and love and pity, and we pray that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But what if we prayed this way as well? Lord, how is it right 
that you who are the creator of all things and the sustainer of the world, who is magnificent in holiness, who has done wondrous things, how is it right that those who live around this church give you no thought whatsoever, have relegated you to insignificance in the public square, who use your name in mockery and scorn and swearing? How is it right that you are not glorified? So, Lord, for the sake of your name, for the fame of your glory, will you not work by the power of your Spirit and bring about a reformation and revival so that the hearts of Canadians might give you the honor that you are worthy of receiving? For your name's sake, O God. Or I wonder if you ever pray about this in the context of temptation. You're overwhelmed by a particular sin. You're hanging on by your fingernails. You don't think that you can continue to resist. You think it's inevitable that you give in. But what if you were in that situation and you prayed, Lord, what will this do for your fame? Everyone knows that I'm a Christian, that I name your name, that I worship with your people, that I am called by the name of the Lord Jesus. Everyone knows that. And if I fall into sin, what will this do for your name's sake? What will people think about you? Oh, he's just a God who can forgive people. But he doesn't have the power to transform their lives, to change them so that they have victory over sin. He's a weak God. All he can say is your sins are forgiven. But he can't actually conform you and make you glorious like his own beloved son. Lord, for the sake of your name, give me grace to resist. Appeal to God's glory. Well, that's what Moses does as a mediator. He's passionate for God's glory, but it's also true of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I don't know if you remember that passage in John 12. I find it one of the most moving passages in all the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus is thinking about his upcoming cross, and he says, now is my soul troubled. He's discombobulated. He's coming apart at the seams. His life is being turned upside down to the sheer horror of going to the cross and bearing on the cross the judgment of a holy God for sins that he had never committed. And as he's thinking about the upcoming cross, he's thinking, now what shall I say? Shall I ask God to figure out some other way? Shall I refuse to go myself? He says, no. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. So that our Lord Jesus understood that in eternity past, he had been appointed by the Father to be the mediator of God's people, and that he had to do that for the honor of God, for the glory of his Father among the nations. Our Lord Jesus Christ is committed to the Father's glory. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. He says that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, so that all that Jesus has done, He has done for the glory of His Father. As He says in John 17, Father, the hour has come. That's the hour of death, of crucifixion. The hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Exalt Your Son on the cross, that Your Son may glorify You. So that everything that the Lord Jesus did, 
he did for the fame of his Father's name. Hallowed be your name. And if that means that I must go to the cross and bear in my soul and body the judgment of God against sin, Father, glorify your name. Here I am, I lay myself upon the altar so that you might be praised. I don't think we think about that as much as we ought to. Generally, when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we think that Jesus died for us, for our sins. That's true. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. But what is even truer, or truer before that, is that Jesus died on the cross, not just for us, but He died for God for His Father's glory, so that God would be magnified among the nations. Moses and Jesus are passionate for God's glory. But there's something else that I want you to see. Not only is Moses passionate for God's glory, he also pleads for God's grace. And that in itself is quite astonishing because these people were not easy on Moses, always harping and complaining and grumbling And yet Moses prays for them. He seeks their good. He wants them to know the blessing and favor of the Lord. And so he asked the Lord not to destroy them. Instead, he asked them, asked him to pardon them. And I want you to notice that Moses doesn't just say, please pardon the iniquity of this people. But Moses argues with the Lord. He gives the Lord reasons why he should forgive the sins of his people. And he appeals to four things. First of all, we see in verse 17, he appeals to the power of the Lord. And now please let the power of the Lord be great. And basically what Moses is saying, Lord, if you were to destroy these people, I know you could, they deserve to be destroyed. I'm not arguing that. But if you were to destroy this people, that would be taking the easy way out. Anyone can wipe out people. But the hard thing to do is to forgive these people, to demonstrate mercy and kindness towards them. That's the hard thing. So Lord, let your power be great. Demonstrate your might and your magnificence. You have done that so often in the past by delivering your people out of Egypt, but do it again. Don't cop out. Don't give in. Don't take the easy way out. As Thomas Goodwin, the English Puritan said, it's easier for God to make new friends than to turn enemies into friends. And that's what Moses is saying, Lord, show your power. Make these enemies friends. He appeals to the power of God. Secondly, he appeals to the promise of God. Let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounded in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. If you know your Bible, you know that this is written first in Exodus 34. Remember in Exodus 33, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will show you my glory. And he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by him and declares his name. And the name of God is the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So Moses says to the Lord basically this, 
this is what you've said you would do in your word. Now I'm asking you to do what you've said. He appeals to the word of God. And this is very good for us as well. When we come to the Lord in prayer, the Lord here loves nothing better than to hear his word brought back to him in prayer. So you you scour the pages of Scripture, whatever your particular situation is, if you're facing temptation, if you're overwhelmed by your sins, you look for the promises of God in the Word, and then you take those promises back to God. Did you not say, Lord, that you would forgive the sins of all those who confess? So now here I am confessing my sins and asking you, do as you said. Did you not promise that you would be with me in all of my trials and difficulties, through all the hardships and distresses of life? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that what you've said, Lord? And so here I am in my brokenness and ruin, and I'm asking you to do what you've said. So he appeals to God's power. He appeals to God's word. Notice in the third place that he appeals to God's love. Verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now you'll know, I'm sure, that the word translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. And it's translated in a variety of ways in our English translations because it's really hard to get a handle on the fullness of that word, but it has to do with God's dogged determination to love you. That His love is not love you today, hate you tomorrow, and maybe love you the next. No, it's constant. It's persistent. It's a love that will never let you go. And this is what Moses is saying to God. Remember your steadfast love. Did you not say that you love your people Israel? Well, if you were to destroy them as one man, they would no longer exist, and your love then for them would have to end along with their ending. How can this be? Remember your steadfast love. Be faithful to your commitments. I remember when I first heard one of my professors at seminary pray along these lines. It was so moving. He said, Father, we know that you will never stop loving us because you've never started loving us. Because from all eternity, you had set your love upon us. And that's what Moses is saying. How could you destroy these people? That would mean that your love has come to an end. And that's not the kind of love you have. It's a dogged love, a persistent love, a love that pursues all the days of my life until I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He appeals to God's love. And then there's a fourth appeal, and I think this is the most peculiar one, and I'm sure you'll agree with me. He says in verse 19, not only please pardon according to the greatness of your steadfast love, but he says, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And basically, what Moses is saying to the Lord, forgive these people because you always have forgiven these people. You have forgiven them, as the Lord says later on, these ten times you've forgiven them, so forgive them once more. And I say this is counterintuitive because when you come to the Lord in prayer, with the same confession of sin, your tendency is to think that God is tired of hearing you. 
Not you again. Same sin. I thought you promised that you would put that away, that you were repentant of it, that you hated doing it, and you didn't want to do it anymore, and here you are back again. You don't want to remind God of your past times that you've come because perhaps He won't listen to you again. That's our tendency, but Moses turns it upside down and says, remember, you've always forgiven us, so here we are again needing forgiveness. Forgive us once more. I say it's counterintuitive, and our children know that. You children know that. In a few more weeks, when it's nice and warm, and you want an ice cream cone from Dairy Queen some evening after supper, you argue with your parents. Not argue, you present a case to your parents about why you should be taken for ice cream at Dairy Queen. And you say to your parents, I'm sure you say to your parents, we hardly ever get ice cream. So why don't you take us? Because you know that if you said to them, uh, Mom and Dad, you bought us ice cream there last night and the night before, and last week Thursday, your parents are going to think, well, I, I've taken you there a lot, so we're probably not going to go tonight. But if you say to them, you hardly ever take us. We never go to Dairy Queen. Well, then they're more likely to say, okay, we'll go tonight. You figured that out, that the more infrequently your parents do something for you, the more likely they are to do it. But Moses has figured something else out, that the more frequently God has done something for you, the more likely he is to do it again. Because Moses understands something about the Lord that we need to understand. The Lord delights to show mercy. He loves forgiving sinners, that all who come to him with uh, the burden of their sin. He loves to hear it confessed, and He delights to remove it from them. That's the kind of God He is. Now, I know, I know my own heart. I know the hearts of God's people. I know that this is a temptation to sin all the more, because you can think like this, right? I love to sin, and God loves to forgive. Well, this is a great arrangement. All sin he can forgive, and we're both happy. But that's not biblical logic, because biblical logic would say that this God who is so gracious and so willing to forgive me my sins, who has demonstrated that time and time again, I don't want to sin against Him, that there's nothing I'd rather do than offer the totality of my life in thanksgiving to Him for the abundance of His grace to me in Jesus Christ. That's gracious logic. But it still needs to be said that Moses appeals to God's past forgiveness. What a great mediator Moses is, don't you think? And it works. His plea with the Lord is successful. The Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. What a kind and gracious mediator the, 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 the leader of God's people, Moses, is. But if you think he's good, I've got a better one for you, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a mediator. We're told that numerous times in the Old, in New Testament. My little children, I write these things to you so that you would not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 34, that he always is at the right hand, always interceding for us. We have a great mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is better than Moses. He's a million times. He's infinitely better than Moses. Because notice, all that Moses can do is plead. He pleads for God's grace. But Jesus pleads for God's grace. Moses cries for God's mercy. But our Lord Jesus dies for God's mercy. Because you understand that there's, there's no way that God can show any kindness to any sinner unless there is the sacrifice of His only beloved Son. Because the judgment of God, the justice of God must be satisfied. And the only way it can be satisfied is if God comes down, takes upon Himself human flesh, and goes to the cross and bears the sins of His people, and then takes upon Himself the judgment of the curse of a broken law. You see, there's no way that God can be powerful and just say, your sins are forgiven by a mighty act of fiat just because I can forgive your sins. No, He can only forgive your sins if there is satisfaction made. So the great power of God is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, who by His death has defeated sin and Satan and hell and has crushed the head of, the, of our accuser. He has taken, as Goodwin says, the crossbeam of the cross and, and has smote the head of our enemy. It is Jesus who, can dem who demonstrates the great power of God. It is Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of the Word of God. The reason God can be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is because God visits the iniquity of His people upon His only beloved Son so that through the Lord Jesus Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen. It is because of the Lord Jesus that there can be the forgiveness of sins. And what about the love of God, this steadfast love? This love that will never let you go. You know where you see that most clearly? You see it in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an eternal love because before the foundation of the world, Christ was chosen to be the Lamb without blemish, to go into this world, to take upon Himself the sins of His people and the punishment of His God. And God's love is so great. His love is so persistent that He will stop at nothing to save His people, even if it means damning His only beloved Son. It is in Christ that we see the steadfast love of our God. And it's in the sacrifice of Christ, given its infinite effectiveness, because it is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who dies on the cross in His humanity that you can know that your sins, though they are many, though they are persistent, though they are repeated, though they are more than the hairs of your head, though they are more than you can count, you know that because of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who comes to God will be saved to the uttermost. Moses is a mediator, but Christ is a far better mediator. He's the one who not only prays, but He purchases your forgiveness. And I want to ask you this morning, if you have this Lord Jesus Christ as your mediator, because there's no one else who can speak for you in your defense. Not all of your good works will be enough to sway the Lord to be merciful. Your minister, as good as he is, 
He can't mediate for you. He needs a mediator himself. The only one who can mediate for you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And my question to you this morning is, do you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your mediator? Have you bent the knee before him? Have you cried out to God for mercy and asked the Lord Jesus, will you not say a good word in my defense before the judge of all the earth? If you have, then you know that He will receive you. That's the kind of mediator He is. He's so gracious and kind, so generous, so overflowing in compassion. He's so gentle and lowly. He invites everyone to come to Him so that they might have life in His name. And if you have the Lord Jesus as your mediator, then you know that your sins are all forgiven, that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that He's interceding there for you, that the judge of all the earth looks at you and he sees your sin. And then he looks at his right hand and he sees your Savior. He looks at you and he sees your mess. Then he looks at his right hand and he sees your mediator. And if you have the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then, then you know what you can say to yourself. You can say to yourself what Charles Wesley said to himself. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming blood, his precious blood to plead. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received in Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They ever plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. That's the mediator of God's people. I think uh, if Israel understood what a mediator they had in Moses, they would have loved him, wouldn't they have? Instead, they grumble against him. They complain. They ignored him. They're rude to him. They take up stones to stone him. But I think that if we only knew what kind of mediator we had in Jesus, that our hearts would go out to him in such love and affection, that we would be absolutely besotted with him. We would want no other confidence, no other trust. We would take the Lord Jesus. We would embrace him. We would not let him go. And we would offer the totality of our lives for his service because he's such a great mediator, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh God, our gracious Father, we bless you that from all eternity, you had appointed your only beloved Son to come into this world. We thank you that our Lord Jesus has been willing to accept the assignment to come and to be the one mediator between God and man. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has brought us to Christ. And we pray that you would give us the joy and the confidence of sins forgiven. Sins not because we confess them, Sins forgiven not because we promise to do better. 
sins forgiven not because we're not as bad as we once were, nor as bad as others, but sins forgiven because we have a mediator who is passionate for your glory and who pleads for your grace. We have Jesus Christ. We pray for those who do not know the Savior, who have never received Him as their mediator, and we pray that you would give them no rest until they find their rest in Him. And we pray this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Let us uh, respond by singing together hymn number 28. Hymn number 28. And we'll sing the stanzas one through five. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor.
Let us seek.